0: Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q and A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. This week, in the day the world stopped shopping, how ending consumerism saves the environment and ourselves. Environmental journalist and best-selling author J.B. McKinnon discusses what would happen to the economy the environment and quality of life if the world cut consumption by 25%. He argues that we are currently using up the world's resources at a rate that is unsustainable and questions what it would take to get people, especially consumer-driven Americans, to buy fewer things. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. J.B. McKinnon, your latest book, The Day the World Stops Shopping, How Ending Consumerism Saves the Environment and Ourselves, is one that you describe to your readers as a work of imaginative nonfiction, a thought experiment. What does that mean, really?
2: In this case, it means that the only way I could think through how to determine what would happen if the world stops shopping was to actually play that out as a as an experiment on the written page so for the purposes of this book i imagine a 25 percent slowdown in consumer spending and see what happens to the ecology to the economy to the way we make our products to ourselves
0: your best-selling 2007 book explored localism and food production how long have you been working on this idea (laughs)
2: <laughs> possibly since I was a teenager. I, I remember being really struck by the writings of Henry David Thoreau on the, on the question of how simply we should live. But more recently, I suppose, the idea came back to me in a really pressing way because I've been working as an environmental journalist for a couple of decades now, and I began to realize that it didn't, it didn't matter which environmental crisis I was looking at or which environmental challenge when I looked at the root causes of that it would come down to consumption how much each one of us is consuming
0: if this book is about the urgency of uh, action on the environment and how consumerism shapes that uh, you're talking to us right now from British Columbia and it's been in the news lately for a lot of severe weather what's the local situation like
2: this year has really brought home for a lot of people, I think, the the severity of the climate crisis. I think it really has convinced people that we're no longer talking about climate change, but an actual crisis. What we've had this year were uh, incredible uh, wildfires. It was one of the biggest wildfire seasons in in the province's history, but but this was also the year that the that the wildfires actually burns you know some small towns to right down to the minerals, essentially. Uh, now we're facing catastrophic flooding, and uh, floods so powerful from these atmospheric rivers, as they're called, that are flowing in laden with water from the tropics that they've ripped apart most of the highway system. And the city I live in right now, Vancouver, a city of a few million people is currently cut off from the rest of Canada with no functioning highway or railway.
0: If uh, this is a thought experiment and a 25% reduction in consumer spending, you write about how COVID put this to the test in real time. So uh, what did we learn through the lockdown and the the, um, full year and a half, almost two years of of the COVID experience about shutting down our economy and what the impact would be on the environment?
2: If we look at... The, I think the earliest weeks and months were the most important when it comes to what, what the pandemic has revealed about what a slowdown in consumption might result in. And certainly, I'm sure viewers will remember the incredibly blue skies that appeared over many cities, the fact that in some places, uh, particularly those cities, mainly in Asia, that produce a lot of the world's consumer goods, people were seeing blue skies, in some cases for the first time in their lives. Uh, They were seeing, you know, they were seeing stars overhead uh, that they'd never been able to see before. And that was the clearing of the particulate pollution in the air from the production of many of the world's consumer goods and from in other parts of the world from uh, all of the commuting that goes on in between uh, our homes and our workplaces. We saw that all of those striking videos from around the world of a resurgence in the natural world, animals, wild animals returning to places that they you know, maybe hadn't been seen in, in decades. And many of those places were areas where mass tourism is generally a you know, very heavy impact and presence. So mass tourism is, of course, also bound up in the consumer lifestyle of today. And when we saw it retreat, we really saw how um, you know, my particular favorite among the videos was a beach in Mexico where American crocodiles were doing all of the things that the tourists usually do, laying in the sun and even surfing in the waves. And of course, we saw the sharpest drop and the deepest drop in carbon emissions ever recorded. So when the consumer economy slows down, the effects are... Uh, they're immediate and they're dramatic.
0: But the flip side of your exploration is what happens to the economy and to the people living in this economy. So what did we learn on that side of the equation?
2: Yeah, again, we we learned that uh, slowing down the consumer economy comes with tremendous hazards. And in this case, uh, a a slowdown that we didn't prepare for, that we didn't uh, move towards in any kind of an incremental way uh, is a disaster. And we've seen that again and again through history, to be honest. You know, interestingly, if we look back uh, through the history of the 20th century and 21st century so far, the only times that we've seen absolute reductions in carbon emissions at a global scale have also come at uh, during crises, during wars, uh, during deep recessions and depressions, and now during the pandemic. So. We have this, what I call the consumer dilemma in the book, where the planet seems to need us urgently to slow down our consumption. The economy needs us to consume more and more.
0: If uh, the COVID presented a bit of a a test case, a, a very visible test case, in what ways was the COVID experience different from what you are thinking about or proposing in
2: your book? Two key differences, I think. One is that it was unexpected. It was unplanned for. It wasn't incremental in any way. It was it was the experiment <laughs> that I play out in my book. But one of the lessons of my thought experiment is that this is not the way we want to slow down consumption. We don't want uh, a slowdown in consumption of 25% overnight. It is very difficult to control the economic consequences of that, as we saw during the pandemic. Uh, the other thing that's strikingly different, of course, between A slowdown in a consumer economy and the pandemic is that uh, in a slowdown in the consumer economy we wouldn't have to retreat away from each other and a very important part of the way that people can make meaning in their lives in the absence of the scale of consumption that we that we engage in today is the strengthening of those bonds of uh, friends family and community and being cut off from those is, is uh, exactly the wrong thing to do in terms of slowing down your consumer economy, because there's, you know, the, you create a void and you don't have anything to fill it with.
0: Your book came out earlier this year, but we thought it was an appropriate time to talk to you right in the holiday shopping season. We're right on the heels of what's called Black Friday and the more recent invention of Cyber Monday. Uh, also, this week, President Biden in the United States convened CEOs of some of the largest retail companies to assure them and the public about opening up supply chains and that inflation wasn't going to be such a big worry. What are you th- thinking as you're watching all of this? I, in fact, I, I looked up uh, the Deloitte company forecast consumer spending to grow by 8.1 percent in 2021 after a 3.8 percent contraction last year. As you're watching all this, what are you th- what is, or your own thoughts about how people have processed the COVID experience?
2: Well, on the one hand, I'm really not surprised. I mean, history has shown that consistently when we have slowdowns in consumption, they are followed by record-setting consumption. And we've seen that once again with the pandemic. There are tremendous forces that compel us to consume. And you know, so getting back to normal involves engaging those, those forces. So we see the, you know, a a real surge in adverse advertising. We see companies, uh, lowering prices in many cases. We have world leaders like president Biden urging people to get back to the malls as we've seen, you know, again and again in, in recent, uh, recent times. So on the one hand, it's, it's not surprising. On the other hand, I think that a lot of, uh, a lot of Americans and a lot of people around the world are re-engaging with this kind of full-throttle consumption, with mixed feelings. I think people uh, they do want to get back to what to a familiar experience. They uh, they do want to help rebuild the economy, but they are also I, you know certainly I'm hearing a lot of discomfort around the 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 obviousness of the fact right now that this is what makes the world tick and yet here we are facing this planetary crisis of climate change and uh, and a, you know, a long list and a long and growing list of other environmental challenges.
0: This year uh, consumer spending is about 70% of the United States GDP and talking about world leaders and the need to, uh, c- to keep the economies humming. You write about uh, George W. Bush after 9-11, uh, imploring people to get back to the malls uh, almost as an act of patriotism. Let's listen to him in September of 2001. Uh, w-
3: I ask for your patience with the delays and inconveniences that may accompany tighter security, and for your patience in what will be a long struggle. I ask your continued participation and confidence in the American economy. Terrorists attacked a symbol of American prosperity. They did not touch its source. America is successful because of the hard work and creativity and enterprise of our people. These were the true strengths of our economy before September 11th, and they are our strengths today.
0: Mr. McKinnon, you wrote about that as something of a watershed moment and the relationship between politicians, the public, and shopping. Why so? Well,
2: a lot of people at that time interpreted those very words as the president telling Americans to go shopping in the face of a national crisis. And I think prior to that point, when Americans were called to, to respond to some kind of dramatic uh National crisis. They would be expecting that they would be asked to uh, to sacrifice uh, or to you know to fulfill duties of some other more dramatic kind than getting back to the mall and shopping. Uh, it was a watershed in the sense that it really opened up. Uh, it re- really made visible this. Requirement essentially, this, this kind of civic duty we have to keep the economy afloat through our consumption. And since uh, George Bush said those words and, and, and was pretty heavily crit- criticized for those words, world leaders uh, of every political stripe have said more or less the same thing in crisis upon crisis upon crisis. And we've heard it again during the pandemic. Uh, so it, it, it was really, to me, the point at which people around the world began to understand that uh, we, our, our role, our primary role in the society is as consumers. And uh, I think a lot of us still find that quite worrisome and even perhaps limiting on our, on our sense of our, our own personal freedoms.
0: As you, as you say, it wasn't always so. Uh, older viewers and listeners uh, in, in North America will remember Jimmy Carter's years when he donned a sweater and asked Americans to turn their thermostat down during the Arab oil crisis. Uh, we also found one from Richard Nixon fully 50 years ago, 1973. Uh, and let's listen to how he addressed Americans in November of 1973 about, about energy usage.
3: As soon as the emergency energy legislation passes the Congress, I shall order the curtailment of ornamental outdoor lighting for homes and the elimination of all commercial lighting except that which identifies places of business. In the meantime, we are already planning right here at the White House to, to curtail such lighting that we would normally have at Christmas time. And I am asking that all of you act now on a voluntary basis to reduce or eliminate unnecessary lighting in your homes. As just one example of the impact that such an initiative can have, the energy consumed by ornamental gas lights alone in this country is equivalent to 35,000 barrels per day of oil. And that is enough fuel to heat 175,000 homes.
0: J.B. McKinnon, what happened in those ensuing decades?
2: we certainly didn't take Richard Nixon's advice. Uh, even at the time, Nixon's, you know, Nixon made requests for people not only to uh, turn out their lights, but to, to uh, drive more slowly, to take fewer flights, uh, to turn down their thermostats. Uh, he, he raised the whole issue of American prosperity and the fact that things that had formerly been seen to be luxuries had become, in our own minds, uh, essentials and needs and you'll openly question whether that was a, a healthy place for American culture to be heading um, but even at the time very few people took him up on on those those requests and certainly since then I mean we've seen a tremendous increase in consumer spending 400% inflation adjusted since 1970 so obviously uh, Consumption didn't slow down. What really strikes me when I listen to Nixon's words there, though, is that those are precisely the kinds of changes that a lot of environmental groups are uh, and and, climate scientists even are are suggesting that we need to make now, that we need to dramatically reduce uh, flights, for example, that we should be turning down our thermostats, that we should be driving less, that perhaps uh, slowing speed limits on highways would be would be a reasonable act in the face of climate change. Uh, so far, we're not seeing more any more take up on this idea of reducing our consumer activity than we did in the past, and we've focused almost entirely on this idea that we can green away the uh, the impacts of our consumption through things like renewable energy, clean energy, uh, energy efficiency, and sort of a long list of other green
0: Well, we'll stay with that thought, please. And how impactful are these green technologies on the problem?
2: Well, I, I mean, I think they're actually uh, they're actually impressively effective in a lot of ways. Without the advances we've made in efficiency and in renewables, uh, for example, I think we certainly our circumstances would be much more serious than they are today. At the same time, we've really been entirely focused uh, on that kind of approach to climate change for the last 20 years. And we have yet to see a single year in which there has been an absolute reduction in global carbon emissions without there being an accompanying recession or pandemic. In other words, a a circumstance in which the world slows down its shopping. Uh, So what we consistently see, for example, is, uh, if i think about a study that was performed in japan where japan set out uh launched a problem called or sort of uh, japan launched a uh a program called the top runner program and that the goal of it was to create more energy efficient appliances televisions air conditioners refrigerators and the like it was incredibly successful uh by the end of the by the end of the the program those types of appliances were 70 percent more energy efficient then researchers went in to see what had happened and of course we're assuming that household electrical use would have been reduced in fact it had increased it was quite a mysterious circumstance so they looked more deeply at it and what they found was that homeowners were realizing that these more energy efficient appliances would lead to a reduction in their spending on their electrical bills. And so they were spending that money, including on products like televisions, air conditioners and refrigerators. So as they got these more energy efficient appliances, they might buy two televisions instead of one, they might add an air conditioner to their home, they might get the largest refrigerator on the market. And in the end, despite these incredible gains in efficiency in the appliances, they were consuming more electricity than they had in the beginning. And we see that kind of uh, that kind of effect happening again and again and again in our attempts to green away the impacts of consumerism.
0: Well, while we're talking about that aspect of your story, since President Nixon was just talking about lighting, you you talk about the LED lighting, which you credit as being a real advance, a scientific advance that had an, an impact on energy consumption. How did people
2: respond? LED lighting has been fascinating because it is just so, uh, it appears to be so powerful a solution to energy consumption in lighting. And it's uh, LED lights consume dramatically less energy than the old incandescent lights. And they can be made very, very durable. So you can, it's quite easy to create an LED uh, light that will last, decades, rather than having a replacement rate of every year and a half or so. So uh, that seemed very promising. What's happened, however, is that we are using more and more lights than we ever did before. So uh, they're being used decoratively in the sense of covering, for example, entire bridges with LEDs or covering the entire facades of Uh, of skyscrapers with LEDs. They are being used in all kinds of decorative um, lighting type situations. I recently learned that they're now producing some cars where you can set mood lighting inside your car through the use of LEDs. And as this is happening, uh, LEDs are entering the same kind of replacement cycle that other gadgets like uh, tablets and cell phones you know it's entering that that same kind of replacement cycle where every time the technology changes people feel like they need to 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 entirely replace uh, the technology that they had previously also uh, led lights are being produced that don't last as long you know there's it's very difficult to 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 uh, make your business make profit and particularly to grow year after year if you're selling a product that only needs to be replaced every 40 years. So LEDs are moving in the same direction that incandescent bulbs did, which is from a more durable product to a, to a more cheap and disposable product. At the, When I started looking at LEDs, uh, some light pollution experts that I was talking to were saying, you know, in the end, we might end up burning more energy with LEDs than we ever did with incandescence, despite the dramatic difference in energy efficiency. And at the time, I thought, no, that that doesn't even seem possible. This is, you know, five, six years later, and I'm convinced that we ultimately will. I mean, the growth in the use of lighting is just so dramatic.
0: There was one historical n- note that, that struck me when we we're talking about lighting, and that was the 1924 meeting about early lighting manufacturers. Would you tell that
2: story? Sure. So there was a there was a group of early lighting manufacturers that became known as the Phoebus Cartel. And they got together to confront this issue of durability versus disposability. And what they realized was that they had in their hands the technology to create long-lasting incandescent bulbs. In fact, there is an incandescent bulb, the longest burning in the world, uh, in Livermore, California, that's still burning today. And it dates back to the early 1900s. Uh, they had that technology in their hands at that time, and what they realized was that it, it created a, an economic challenge for them. Uh, eventually, they would fill every, every light socket with one of these long-lasting bulbs, and then they wouldn't be able to sell anymore. They didn't have environmental concerns or energy efficiency concerns at mind at that time. And so they thought, well, let's, um, let's just drive down the, the lifespan of these bulbs and settled on a, on a, a figure of about a thousand hour lifespan that became the incandescent bulb that we grew to know and probably despise the, the light bulb that you would pop into your socket. And uh, before you knew it, you were having to buy a replacement for it. That's the direction that uh, led bulbs have headed in as well. And uh, on top of that, we are using LEDs in, in, in uh, for purposes for lighting purposes that we 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 had never created until LEDs became available, and uh, available, inexpensive. And inexpensive to operate because they consume so little energy.
0: So the lighting light bulb story from 1924 is, is an early instance of planned obsolescence, a concept that crosses many and many industries. Uh, but I'm wondering if if uh, our approach as consumers seemed to change in the 1970s in, in the wealthier countries of the world. What really accelerated it? What was going on in society that that moved people from uh, a, a more modest lifestyle to the consumption lifestyle? lifestyle?
2: I think what happened is that we we had a long period of consumer austerity. So the times that probably most closely resemble our times today in the past were the 1920s. I mean, that was a time of real economic exuberance. Then came, of course, the Depression. Following the Depression came uh, the World War, World War II. So through a very long period, you saw a uh, you saw a lot of consumer austerity, but you also saw, because of particularly because of World War II, really tremendous advances in our productive capacities. We were able to make many, many more products more cheaply than we ever had before. And so beginning in the 1950s into the 60s and 70s, uh, consumption patterns changed, and people began to I – mean, people certainly – you know, rushed into the embrace of modern consumerism. It, uh, it began to move in that direction in the 1950s as the economy uh, really picked up steam in the 60s and 70s. It just skyrocketed. And uh, ever since then, we've been moving further and further along this road to the model of uh, high turnover, high volume uh, quantity over quality production of goods, services, and consumer experiences.
0: Another factor that happened in the 1960s that you write about is the rise of television and advertising. Now you report about $600 billion spent on advertising worldwide. Uh, What uh, impact has that had on the consumer society?
2: Well, it's certainly been an accelerant of it. Uh, What we see is a kind of lockstep advance with consumption rising and advertising becoming more and more sophisticated. So in recent years, I mean, there are times, certainly for myself as a person who looks closely at consumption and consumerism, where I wonder how are we ever going to generate more of it? You know, how are we going to convince people who are consuming so much already to consume even more? And then I look at things like the the incredibly targeted and personal nature of advertising online today uh, just how incredibly easy it is to feel the impulse to buy and to hit that buy button. Uh, I look at things like the acceleration of the fashion cycle, which is almost in perpetual, uh, perpetually changing at this point. Where in the past it would change maybe two seasons, you know, two fashion seasons a year. Uh, we now have constant change in the fashion cycle, uh, and that fashion cycle is marketed through primarily through the internet today so we see all of these kinds of changes changes in advertising and marketing and even in the production of goods uh, all pushing forward at the same time and not surprisingly we see we see consumption constantly rising even among people who who you know, could only be considered to have all of their essential needs and much much more already met.
0: In the exploration of this topic, it looked like you went to the four corners of the earth. Obviously, before COVID, how many countries did you visit in your research?
2: Yeah, I mean, I should I should acknowledge that I was a pretty terrible consumer of uh, of of travel and flights for this book. But uh, I traveled uh, how many countries? I'm not sure, but certainly certainly a half dozen or more. Um, yeah, more probably close to about probably close to ten countries. Uh, along the way, um, ranging from places like the the Kalahari Desert in Namibia, where I went to see people who have a 150,000 year cultural history of really minimal relationship to material goods, through to um, through to Japan, uh, through to a number of countries in Western Europe, Ecuador in South America, where the average Ecuadorian citizen is consuming at what's considered to be a, a sustainable rate in terms of the planet and the planet's resources. So uh, yeah, I roamed widely trying to see what I could from real life circumstances and, and situations about what it might look like if we slowed down consumption and, and uh, lived in a lower consuming world.
0: One of those places was fairly close to home for you, San Francisco, where you met Paul Dillinger. Who is he?
2: Paul Dillinger is, uh, is a VP at uh, Levi's, Levi's Strauss and Company in San Francisco, and uh, yeah, a very interesting character to talk to.
0: We have a, a bit of video from him from uh, 2019, speaking to, at the Fashion Institute of Technology, a place where lots of uh, promotion of fast fashion happens. And uh, let's listen to what he had to say and then come back and hear what your thoughts were on his, uh, his contributions to your research.
1: And I'm not sure how how true these statistics are, only that I'm citing at least the source for them. But according to McKinsey's recent report on consumption in the state of fashion industry, we've got about six out of ten garments that are being thrown away or incinerated within the first year of their production. So we can say, if that is true, we are dealing with uh, the impact of an industry that is 60% overproducing. And if we looked at uh, recent. A studies by the American Apparel and Footwear Association that say that the average American is purchasing about 60 garments a year. Uh, 60% of 60 garments is going to be 36 pairs of Levi's. If we look at the total water impact of a pair of Levi's, which is around 3,781 liters of fresh water per garment times 36, we end up with a figure that represents drinking water needs for 189 years. So the average If if it were converted to pairs of Levi's, which we hope it's not, we're talking about the average unnecessary water spend per American equates to two lifetimes worth of drinking water. And this is a problematic truth that the fashion industry has to confront.
0: How is the fashion industry confronting it?
2: The fashion industry is not confronting it. It's accelerating it. Uh, There are, however, uh, companies within the fashion industry that are confronting it. And uh, Levi's is actually one of those companies. So, uh, last uh, is it this spring? I guess spring twenty twenty one. Levi's took quite an, made it a, quite an extraordinary step and announced publicly that uh, that they believe that the apparel industry is currently built on overconsumption, and that their attempts to green the production of their products was not wholly adequate and that what they they recognized that what was more important than convincing people to buy more sustainable products would be convincing people to buy fewer products per individual. So this is this is a, a line that has been taken by some other you know, certainly some, some small companies in America by some mid-sized companies like Patagonia is probably the most uh, well-known example but for a for a, for a brand with the global recognizability of Levi's to come out and acknowledge that, uh, that the industry they work within is, is founded at this point on, on overconsumption was quite extraordinary. And so they now, as you know, they're, they're certainly still moving to green their production uh, and make it conserve more water and energy and resources but they are also moving in this direction of encouraging consumers to think about what they need and encouraging consumers to buy products that last longer. And, of course, uh, that's a good market. That's a good place to be in the market for for, uh, Levi's because they are associated with a durable product, denim goods and jeans. Their bet seems to be that they can take A chunk of market share back from fast fashion uh, by selling people on this idea of buying fewer but better things.
0: Would it necessarily mean that the prices would be higher? I mean, there's the conundrum that you write about and explore is that there's also an expectation for publicly traded companies to to continue to produce good returns for their investors, which means selling more goods. So how does this all uh, resolve itself?
2: That's a really good question. And I, it's probably an impossible one for me to answer other than to look at the kinds of models that companies are trying as they move in this direction. So you look at companies like Eileen Fisher, uh, Patagonia and Levi's, then they're moving in this direction of selling fewer new goods, uh, gathering up their secondhand goods and selling, you know, making more of their sales and profits through the resale of their own goods secondhand they are looking at things like the maintenance and uh, alteration and repair of the products that they make as part of their business model uh, they're you know taking this different these different kinds of, of approaches but the ultimate goal is sell fewer new things and put you know make more money from keeping those durable products uh, circulating in the economy. So this this is this idea of fewer but better, or what some people call a buy less, buy better economy. It's one that would be more uh, more firmly anchored in quality than it would be in quantity. And really what it would resemble is the economy of about 20 years ago, when literally almost every product that we consume was coming to us at a higher level of quality. And most people recognize this. And it's certainly one of, for many people, one of the most frustrating aspects of the modern consumer economy is this uh, steady drift towards cheaper and more disposable. Were Did those products cost more? They did, but we bought fewer of them. So uh, if you're buying 600 cheap and disposable garments a year, for example, e- mm-hmm you could certainly spend more money per garment and buy uh, 60 garments a year or uh, 25 garments a year.
0: In those statistics that, that Paul Dillinger cited, uh, average piece of clothing uh, lasting one and a half years um, and that people were buying on average now 60 garments a year. Where is all of that unwanted clothing going?
2: the unwanted clothing is going uh, into landfills or it's being incinerated uh very little of it is being recycled Uh, the idea that we send it overseas and that it ends up in uh you know being charitably distributed to people who don't have enough clothing in poor countries is you know largely not the case a lot of the clothing is ending up in in areas like you know regions of the world like Africa, where a lot of it is simply being being burned, uh, or it's being resold to people in those countries rather than given away charitably. So, uh, really, what we're talking about, if you know, uh, the the core of the question is, where is all of this stuff going? For the most part, almost overwhelmingly, it's going to landfills, and and it's being incinerated in some cases to produce energy.
0: Uh, one statistic before we leave this part of the conversation that struck me was uh, was loading up all of the garbage that the United States and Canada produces into garbage trucks. What what is the statistic that you told readers on how much that would the space that would take up?
2: <laughs> uh, you, you might actually have to remind me on this, but uh, I mean certainly it is it is uh, garbage trucks that could circle circle the world a number of times. Uh, the the amount of waste we produce is. Is you know absolutely phenomenal, and of course, again is growing in step with uh, with the growth of the consumer economy as a whole.
0: Yeah, the actual number you had calculated was circling the equator 12 times.
2: Twelve times, yeah. yeah. So uh, let
0: me move to the the second part of of your exploration, which is what the subtitle uh, is not just saving the economy, but uh, 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 saving the environment, but also saving ourselves. This part of your book is really almost a spiritual or existential exercise in in what consumerism means to individuals. Tell me a little bit more about how you explored this aspect.
2: Sure. Well. Probably the starting point for exploring this was a conversation I had with a psychologist named Tim Kasser, who was explaining to me two different value sets. One of them is the value set that is at the heart of consumer culture, and that is uh, an extrinsic value set uh, that centers on income, possessions, and social status. So this is the one that we often think of as materialism or consumerism, and there's this other value set called intrinsic values by psychologists, and these are values that are inherently satisfying. So extrinsic values are, are referred to that because they need external approval. So uh, being fashionable is, a, is an extrinsic value. You can You can take personal satisfaction from being fashionable, but really other people need to agree with you other people need to uh, approve your fashion choices and acknowledge that you are a well-dressed person for that to be meaningful and satisfying intrinsic values are things like having a close-knit group of friends Uh, you might be envied by people for having a close-knit group of friends but it doesn't require other people's approval having a close-knit group of friends is is inherently satisfying other intrinsic values are things like mastering new skills, uh, developing a relationship with nature, thinking about or being engaged with issues that are larger than yourself. And uh, these, what I wanted to talk to Tim Kasser about was, well, if we turned away from consumerism and these, this extrinsic value set and moved towards this more intrinsic value set, how quickly would that happen? And he said... He didn't know, because the research on that had not been done. We had that conversation on January 30th, 2020. And that same day, the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus a global health emergency. And in the following weeks and months, we saw how quickly people were able to turn, uh, as they were locked out, literally locked out of consumer culture, how quickly they were able to turn towards this more intrinsic value set. And it was essentially overnight. I mean, the you will remember the, the media talking about an epidemic of kindness and people, even though they were limited by only being able to reach people by telephone or by video call, um, people reaching out to, in many cases, to people they hadn't contacted for years. Uh, you'll remember the the focus that people had on the natural world you know people out walking in parks walking by the seaside bird watching in numbers that that they never had before uh the sourdough loaves the gardening these were the mastering of new skills that were inherently satisfying so we saw this quite dramatic shift Uh, i remember very early on one um, entertainment executive who posted on instagram himself quarantining on on his yacht in uh, I believe it was somewhere in the Caribbean and being uh, essentially shouted off of Instagram for this garish display of consumption which two months earlier was the bread and butter of platforms like Instagram just the absolute norm that everybody was participating in and it suddenly became uh, unacceptable now all of that changed over the pandemic uh, you know, it, it evolved and it evolved back towards what we know, this more extrinsic value set. But those initial weeks and, and months were really striking.
0: You visited, you mentioned uh, Ecuador, and these are uh, two, that in Sato Island, Japan, two examples where uh, consumption levels are at a lower level than in, in the wealthiest countries in the world. And it's been on a sustained basis. What did you learn from visiting those two places?
2: Well, really what I learned from a country like Ecuador is that it's possible to have a high quality of life with a dramatically lower level of consumption. So Ecuador has uh, a level of consumption that is considered replicable at a planetary scale. So if the average, if we all lived like the average Ecuadorian, we would be able to sustain that lifestyle for all of us with the natural resources currently available on the planet. That's not the case, for example, with American consumption, where if everyone on Earth lived like the average American, we would uh, we would need five planet Earths to sustain that lifestyle. Um, but Ecuador is also rated a highly developed nation by the United Nations, so it has a you know a much much lower level of consumption, but it has a high level of development. So these two things can exist together and. Uh, I mean, a high level of development is not as high a level of development as, for example, the United States, which is classified as a very highly developed nation, but it's still a very high quality of life. And if you think of you know, our capacities to innovate uh, and to adapt, it seems very likely to me that you could have a very high quality of life by United, the, the measures that the United Nations uses and still have a drastically lower level of consumption. Sato Island is a different case where' uh, it's, it's really the, the shining example of the impacts of depopulation in Japan. So Japan is Japan's population is shrinking and that in effect is is a shrinking of consumption. There are fewer consumers so there's less consumption. Sato Island, has had a 50% reduction in its population and uh, has had to adapt to that. And there is no hope and nobody is seriously considering the idea that economic growth is going to return anytime soon to Sado Island. And so as a community, they've had to ask themselves, well, what do we want our economy to do? Uh, We know it's going to shrink, it's going to be smaller. What What will we focus that economy on and, and what do we want it to achieve? And what they chose is things like uh, protection of their natural environment, protection of their uh, their cultural heritage and the architecture that represents that. And in particular, care for people. So care for the elderly and uh, care for uh, children, uh, the vulnerable in general. They've, they've chosen that as their focus. And uh, I spoke to the mayor of Sado Island and uh, you know, asked him, you know, if we slow down consumption, is it necessarily a catastrophe? And he said, no, you know, he said, if, 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 you, if, if this happens gradually over time, we can adapt. And uh, I'm convinced that that's the case.
0: One other example, and again, your thought experiment ex- explores a 25% drop in consumer spending. You, w- you visited Finland and they experienced a 14% drop and consumer spending. What happened there?
2: In Finland, you saw a plunge into a depression. It's referred to as the Finnish Depression. And what was striking in Finland is that, unlike what many people expect, there were not mass protests in the streets. There was certainly not mass starvation in the streets. Uh, Finland is quite a equitable nation in terms of its distribution of wealth. And uh, they you know, that they took care of people. <laughs> they, they took care to see that, uh, that employment was, uh, well, opportunities for employment were distributed as fairly as possible, that the wealth of the nation was distributed uh, more fairly than it had been. And, uh, and they got through that, that depression. One of the striking things that happened was, and we see this in recessions and depressions uh, in general, is that you do see quite a dramatic shift in conspicuous consumption? So this classic, uh, this classic, uh, you see this this uh, significant change in people's behavior in terms of how they display their wealth. So in Finland, for example, uh, you know as one woman said to me, the wealthy sometimes complain that they're not able to show off their wealth because Finns will not only not admire you for it they will actively disdain you for it uh, you might be able to have one ferrari in finland but you're not going to own 10 ferraris in finland so there's this this social pressure that has arisen from the finnish depression that uh, is very very different than what we see in uh, the united states for example where it's uh, it's it's kind of par for the course, if you've got wealth, you will flaunt that wealth. Um, certainly over the last 25 years, that's been the case. But curiously, that really was not the case through much of the 20th century, because as as the nation went through hard times like the Depression, like World War II, uh, like the social activism in the 1960s, uh, the wealthy have again and again actually had to reduce the degree of of conspicuous consumption that they engaged in due to social pressures.
0: The uh, producing countries of the world, many of them, some of the poorer societies like Bangladesh, when you spoke to someone there, uh, just so people understand, you report the second largest clothing manufacturer in the world after China, 6,000 factories. What did you explore with the people you talked to in clothing manufacturing? What would happen if there was a sharp drop in global clothing consumption? What would happen there?
2: Well, we we actually saw it in the pandemic. We saw millions of people cast out of work by a sharp drop in, in consumption in the West of clothing. And uh, so really quite catastrophic. And yet I spoke to the CEO of one of the companies that uh, produces uh, a, a really extraordinary amount of knitwear, 200,000 articles of clothing a day through uh, the factories that this CEO oversees. And I, you know, I went to him because I thought, well, here is a person who is going to challenge the idea that the West should reduce consumption. And instead he was in full agreement with the idea. He said that, uh, that this trend towards cheaper and cheaper and more and more disposable garments was was very bad for his country. It drove down uh, it drove down wages for workers. It pushed the country to cut corners on environmental regulation. And what I found maybe most striking was that he said it, it deeply affects people's sense of dignity to produce goods. And they know that they're producing these clothes and that they're going out and being purchased for Four dollars somewhere in the United States or in Europe, or they're being sold in a fill-your-bag sale uh, for twenty-five bucks. Um, they know that, and it, you know, it's an indignity to them to think that their labor is going out there and being treated as cheap and disposable product. He felt that even if the result was a reduction by fifty percent of factories producing clothing in Bangladesh. If that led to uh, an industry that paid better, that was more environmentally sustainable, uh, that involved more dignified work, that that trade-off would be worth it in this country. So
0: in uh, seven or so minutes we have left, uh, bringing this all together, here's the dilemma that you write about. You, You posit that the global level of consumption is unsustainable. Uh, but, uh, and the greening technologies that have been deployed so far are not able to address the problem sufficiently, yet not consuming at any large level collapses economies. So where does society go from here?
2: I think that we move incrementally in the direction of the reduction of consumption, so.
0: And how does that happen?
2: It can happen in, in a week. There are concrete steps that we can take that can that can achieve this in the same way that there were concrete steps that we could take towards greening and renewable energy and energy efficiency. So, for example, you know, a really simple example would be uh, lifestyle or sorry lifespan labeling of products. Uh, right now, if I go into uh, into a shop and I pick up two sweaters, uh, one is more expensive than the other. I'm going to buy the cheaper one given no other information. But if I look at the other sweater and see, oh, well, this one's going to last, it's expected to last and be wearable for 10 years, and the cheaper one is expected to be wearable for 10 wears, then I might consider it a better value to buy the one that has a lifespan label to indicate a longer life. Uh, That's a really simple example of the kind of changes that can be made. President Biden has talked about a right, you know, right to repair legislation. So a mandate that companies produce products that can be repaired rather than disposed of. Uh, that's the kind of step that can be taken that's concrete. There are things that we can do with taxes in terms of uh, more heavily taxing products that are uh, that are produced new and reducing taxes on the sale of secondhand goods or on the repair and maintenance of goods. There are. More macro things that we can do, like addressing income inequality, because income inequality is known to be a powerful driver of of consumerism. You know, the keeping up with the Joneses effect is real, and uh, but it is lessened in circumstances and in nations where the gap between rich and poor is less wide. We can start to build the costs, the environmental and social costs of products. Those costs that are currently considered externalities from the price of products. We can build those externalities into the price of products as we are now with carbon taxes, for example. And that is the kind of step we can take that makes it more costly to produce uh, new goods and less costly to produce goods through recycled products, uh, to make them more durable, uh, to put them into sharing cycles, and uh, sharing type business models there are all of these concrete steps that we can do that uh, can gradually transform society so that it isn't put upon the individual's shoulders to reduce their consumption alone but rather we create a society where we are all consuming less
0: how are you uh, kind of processing the fact that you're promoting these ideas through the sale of a book a medium which has <laughs> has environmental and energy consumption impacts all along its life, life cycle.
2: Yeah, this. I mean, this is the this is the the situation that I think everybody who's promoting any kind of environmental change finds themselves in, uh, where we're advocating change, but we're advocating change within a system that we all live in. And I don't claim to be a perfect a person whose whose uh, consumption is is perfectly responsible in any way. Uh, What I'm trying to promote is a discussion around the reduction of consumption, putting that back at the center of our conversations around sustainability, because it really hasn't, we really haven't had that discussion for about 25 years. It was the mid 1990s was the last time that there was a broad public conversation about reducing consumption rather than trying to green away its impacts. That to me is really the most important thing right now, is having conversations like this one.
0: In your work on this topic, how have you changed the way that you live?
2: I have mainly changed in the sense of moving towards uh, a more, I I think the thing that became most important for me was making that, acknowledging and actively making that shift from uh, a life driven by those extrinsic values and towards those more intrinsically satisfying values. So what comes out of that is that rather than seeing a reduction of consumption as, uh, giving up a whole lot from your life, you realize that there's a lot to gain from that. And, uh, as you reduce your consumption, you have more free time. You can invest that time differently. You can invest it by spending times by the seashore or in the mountains with people you care about, building mm-hmm. and strengthening your relationships with people you care about, uh, engaging with with uh, environmental or social causes, uh, all of these, there are all kinds of different things that you realize we we stand to gain if we step back from this constant engagement with consumerism.
0: The book is called The Day the World Stops Shopping, How Ending Consumerism Saves the Environment and Ourselves. Author J.B. McKinnon, thank you so much for spending an
2: hour with C-SPAN. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org send me your questions your comments or ideas your feedback is welcome